0: Welcome to the Service Management Leadership Podcast with Jeffrey Tiefertiller. Welcome back to another Service Management Leadership Podcast. I have David Cannon, the esteemed David Cannon, back with us. How are you this week, David?
1: Yeah, getting nice and warm in Dallas. So I'm, I am definitely steamed.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last time we talked about the Frankenstein effect. And... How monsters air quotes monsters are created because we've taken a little bit here a dash of this and we put together over time and it's kind of evolved into a monster so let's let's kick off with the hard question up front, how do we solve this.
1: um yeah you hear a lot of the hesitation it's easy to find a problem it's more difficult to find the solution uh but for me the so let's talk about the components of the solution where do we go to find the solution so for me one thing is the operating model we mentioned this on last week's call um and, and that is that an operating model is a very important piece of the puzzle it tells you how everything fits together so it tells you if you have a solution where does that solution fit within the organization? who Who is using it and why are they using it? And how does it contribute to how the organization creates value? Um, so the, you know, how, how, how do the solutions that you're using and solutions, not just meaning tools, but processes and uh, and, and and any capabilities that you have, knowledge, um, skills, and so on. How are we using that to really support the value streams? How are we so use, using those solutions to um, to support value streams? It tells us where we have products and where we have services and how we are managing those. Um, and it tells us where we have, you know, how those products and services are related to each other. So having an operating model it really is an important part of dealing with this Frankenstein effect and um, because it tells you where the different components are. I think the second piece of the puzzle that we need to be looking at is how we've used frameworks. I think it's really important that we do not just assume that everybody's using the same terminology in the same way. So on last week's podcast, I mentioned uh, asset management and config management. And I think... We don't often realize that going back 30 years, those two terms were used differently in two different frameworks. So if you look at ITL, you see the term configuration management. And in ITL version one, the term configuration management was used in the sense of both, how do you configure or set up items and how do you manage the life cycle of those items? Well, if you go to the OSI, which was being developed at about the same time, you will see those two concepts separated and the term configuration management used to specifically talk about how do you configure devices how do you set them up what are the what are the what are the options and what are the standard configurations that you that you use when you when you install a new piece of equipment versus asset management which talked about the life cycle of that Now, you have somebody coming from an ITIL background, bringing their understanding of configuration management. You have someone coming from an OSI background who brings their uh, perception of uh, of configuration management. And you have two slightly different, related, but different understandings of the term. And we start seeing that today, the impact of that, where you start seeing IT asset management practices emerging. And what we have not done is shown how that is different from configuration management for those people who are using more of an ITIL background. So there's this lack of appreciation of history of where these frameworks come from and how terms are used in the frameworks. Another example that I've heard just recently, FCAPs. Remember the old FCAPs? Uh, faults, uh, oh my goodness, configuration, uh, accounting, performance and security. There you go. Now again, so we talk about faults. Well, what's the relationship between faults, incidents, errors, and problems? If you come out of an FCAPS background, you have a very clear understanding of what a fault is. You come out of an ICLE background, you have a very you don't even use the word fault. you use incident, you use error, you use problem. How are those related? And uh, what I saw just recently is kind of a a situation in an organization where one group was using FCAPs, another group was using incidents, problems, and errors, and the two of them were really not getting on very well at all because they were misaligned. So part of this was to sit down and say, okay, your team is using FCAPs, your team is using uh, a more of an idle uh, way of looking at it. Why? what are you including in your term fault? What are you including in your term incident, problem, and error? How do these two fit together? And we as an organization need to make a decision about how we're going to use these two these terms moving forward. We're not just going to accept that one group is using that term and the other group is using that term. Let us make a decision on which term we're going to use and when and why. And that's part of adopting a framework, is you don't just adopt a framework and, and stick to it. What you do is you take,
0: excuse me, let me just. It's allergy season here. There you go,
1: second. allergy season in Dallas. There you go, part, part of being steamed. Uh, what you do is you you take the framework. You evaluate the terms that it uses the concepts that come out of that framework, and you evaluate them in terms of your operating model. And you say, this is how we're going to adopt this framework. We're going to take these pieces. We're going to use them in this way. We're going to use another framework for those pieces. And this is why we're doing it. And that becomes part of your operating model. I'm, I'm a big fan of, of taking from multiple sources. Don't just use one framework and apply it because it doesn't solve all problems. So use multiple frameworks, but again, don't use those components and just apply them in isolation. Use them by consciously deciding how that framework is gonna apply within your operating model. You know, again, we see um, uh, one of the examples I saw of this is a couple of organizations that use design thinking. Great methodology, uh, great approach, but what they did Instead of saying, let's use design thinking as part of the way in which we analyze a situation and come up with a solution or a new product or whatever the case is, what they did is they created a design thinking office. And that design thinking office operated in isolation almost as a service to everybody else. And over time, the next fad came along and the design thinking office was still there, but something else was being used to do similar things. And now you have two offices that are doing similar kinds of things, but using different methodologies. No, you know, so is design thinking still working for you? Yes, then continue working with it, but there's this new idea that's come along. How do we integrate it in there? Do we replace some elements of design thinking? And uh, with some of this new element, which parts do we replace? Do we keep some parts? If so which parts do we keep and how do we integrate it into this new emerging thing that we found? That's the kind of thinking that we should have. But you know, but I find that you know a lot of organizations maybe don't have the time to do it. Maybe the teams that are adopting these frameworks are too are operating too much in silos. Um but having an operating model approach, make sure you go through that due diligence of understanding how you're using frameworks. So those to me, those are two of the first components I would look at when looking for a solution to the Frankenstein effect is like, do you have an operating model? Um, if you do, are you using it? Are you using it as a as, as a way of articulating how the solutions that you're developing are being used in the organization? And two, are you using frameworks? You probably are, but be very conscious about how you use those frameworks. Uh, surface the terms that you're using define def- for your organization. What do those terms mean? Yeah, we got them from that source, we got them from the other source. But when we use them, this is what we mean. This is what we mean. And um, I think that's that's very helpful. Um, yeah, so let me pause there.
0: <laughs> so I have a couple of uh, thoughts for you. These are interesting yeah. to me. I've even been in organizations that do not—they think they're using ITIL terms, but they—they're not. They're calling—they're yes. using the word event when they mean incident, or things of that nature. They don't really know what a known error is. We all know what a workaround is. We just may not call it one. But the—the the, when you were talking about this, my brain was going to those organizations that have one foot into the ITIL v3 boat and one to one foot into the ITIL four boat. And do we call it change management? Do we call it change enablement? Do we do the service life cycle or do we do these value streams? You know, I I think that this whole operating model thought and how it evolves over time is gonna be germane and important to organizations now going forward.
1: Yeah, very much so. Um, You know, we spoke last week about the need to keep yourself updated Uh, to move with the times. And the fact is that every framework that you use is moving with the times. And so part of keeping your operating model up to date is understanding how the frameworks that you're using are changing. And so if you have change management working in your organization, and that's great, and you were using IQL version three as a basis for that, that probably is going to meet a lot of your needs, most of your needs. So they changed it to change enablement. Why did they do that? Does that impact us? Are we going to make those same changes in the way we work? And and, and by the way, since we raised it, the whole purpose of doing that is because in a a more agile organization, the control of changes is maintained within the semi-autonomous teams, more so than it used to be in a a very uh, central uh, technology-centric organization. Um, so are there parts of your organization that have become more autonomous, where you do need a, a separation between the change control that happens inside the team, and the enablement of the change that eventually comes as a product of what that team produces? And if that's the case, then then probably you need to update your operating model to, to deal with that. Uh, this is not just a case of saying, oh, well, Ikel changed uh, from version 3 to version 4, we'd better change too. Um, you know, there's some things you probably are not gonna want to change. And there are some things that you definitely should be thinking about changing. Um, but it's a conscious, it's a conscious process of evaluating the frameworks and how you're using them over time. Um
0: in what's best yeah. for you right now, right? Like exactly it's not what's in what's best for you right now may change over time because your needs of changing in your stakeholders. So I have one doozy of a question for you as we close. We talked about this operating model. We talked about how it evolves. How do we initiate an operating model if we don't have one? What kind of strategy and business drivers, how do we get started with an operating or business model?
1: That's a really good question. Um, and, and here's one very important thing to bear in mind. As a leader or manager within an organization, we should never be attempting to do something that we do not have authority over. This is the source of so much frustration within organizations. We're told, you need to develop a strategy. So we start developing strategies for all kinds of things and and suddenly realize but we don't even own those things. Uh, The best we can do is try and influence people to make changes in those areas. Um, So... One of the important things really that we need to be doing is saying, well, what what exactly do I have authority to change? Or what exactly do I have authority over that I can draw a definitive model for? It's unlikely that most of us in IT will be able to to develop an entire operating model for the entire organization. If that does not exist, what can we do? Well, um, the first option, of course, first prize is to try and become a part of the team that does build the operating model. It's likely to be a, a, a number of enterprise architects working at a very senior level, potentially uh, into the uh, reporting into the CEO. Um, if that does not exist, what do you do? Um, well, the, the best thing that we can do is go back to those things that we do have control over. Number one, what services do we provide and why do we provide them and to whom do we provide them? Number two, what are the value streams that we support? Mapping those value streams, understanding what our role in those value streams is. And I think that is a a very helpful start to, because both of those things, by the way, value streams, as well as processes and services and products, um, they're all part of the operating model. So if we can get better about articulating and architecting and mapping the parts of the operating model that we have authority over, it's a really good start. Um, and and the more we can do that, the more we are able to influence how other people define and articulate their role in in the operating model. So I think that's to me that's probably the, the best the best way to approach it. So nothing new here. Back to basics. Map your services. Define your products. What are they? Have good configuration management in place so you can see the relationships between them. But I think the piece that that is emerging as being very important is this articulation of value streams and how we contribute to value streams. That's a piece that we should be spending a lot of time focusing on. If we do not have the ability to to manage the entire operating system, uh, sorry, to define the entire operating model.
0: So when in organizations that ask me, I tell them, find your value, the ones that are the high value and map those services first. Right. There's no reason mapping first the ones that are of little value. Let's map the services and value streams of the ones that, you know, are the biggest value to the organization, because that means we'll be able to produce and enable and deliver, co-create if you will, more value to the organization. Does that seem reasonable?
1: It does and going through this exercise really shows what is more important and what is less important and i give you an example here um, related to configuration management and I, I may have used this example before but Uh, In an organization that I worked in, we went um, went through an exercise of value stream mapping, and we identified a particular value stream, and we mapped it, and we defined the services that were involved in supporting that. We defined the products that were involved in supporting that value stream, and we then asked the question, what do we need to know to be able to produce those products and deliver these services? When we documented that, it turned out that the information that we needed from the CMDB was about 10% of the total amount of information that was in there. Yes. And what was interesting is that the 100% was out of date, because it's impossible to maintain that CMDB 100% real time. But by focusing on the 10% that we knew was absolutely critical for us to be able to manage these products and services, we were able to define ways in which to keep that data up to date and accurate. And we didn't worry so much about the 90%. Right. You know that, um, So when you start focusing on the outcomes, there, it, it really does help you to define which components are really important, which are not. And I'm not just talking configuration items here. We're talking about uh, tools. We're talking about um, uh, projects. Uh, We're talking about how we spend our money. Uh, All of those kind of things start falling into place. We can then start prioritizing our activities a lot better. We can then start seeing where there is a disconnect between different groups, different frameworks, different technologies and so on. Uh, but you can't do that unless you're really looking at, uh, you know, exactly what you said, the outcomes, the value, the, um, the the business priorities.
0: And as we come to a close, I was just going to repackage two things and make sure, get your thoughts, make sure I got them right. Is that that other 90%, well, all of that 10% and the 90 come with a cost. And we all have finite resources, which should direct our thoughts towards the value, right? Like, you know, we we have finite resources in IT, finite budgets, people, all that kind of thing. So we need to focus on what's important, number one. But number two, that regular upkeep is the difficult part, right? It's one thing we have. We have to use the old Ronco's or younger people set it and forget it mentality. It's hard with configuration management. It's hard with services. It's hard with value streams because they do evolve over time.
1: Well, and and not only do they evolve over time, but they change pretty rapidly. Yes. Uh, And so, for example, as soon as you move uh, a workload into the cloud, um, you'll, you'll be very aware of how quickly that workload changes because you are paying for it by the use of, uh, of, of that item. And so you can immediately become more aware of exactly how that service is being used and by whom and how much it's costing. If you weren't aware of it before, you're, you're gonna become very aware of it when it moves into the cloud because the as you say, the, the, the change, uh, not only in what the solutions are that we provide, but also in how we use them is just constant. So set it and forget it is is not a feasible option. When you're working in a real time changing environment, you have to know what you're managing, what it does, why it's so important, and as you say, how much it's costing you. So so that you can so that you can prioritize. Um, and, and again, there are going to be some things that really you do not need to prioritize and you do not need to be spending what you're spending on them today. And one of those examples I can tell you right now is the amount of data that you're storing in your CMDB, you are unlikely that you need all of that. Yep. Uh, number one and, and number two, it's, it's unlikely that you need to be spending what you're spending on it to keep it up to date because it's just not being used by anybody.
0: Right. And uh, better data is better than more data. But that's just uh, that's right. one of my mantras. David, it's yes, great having you with so. us again and uh sharing your pearls of wisdom. And you'll be back, we'll invite you back on very soon. You're always a favorite of the of the listeners. Thank you for well, joining thank us. Thank you very David.
1: much. It's it is always a pleasure to be here and look forward to comments, uh, please, uh, from those of you listening. If you see uh this being posted on LinkedIn or uh, or Twitter or wherever you got access to it, please comment. I'd love to get your feedback and, and uh, hear your experiences of, uh, of how you have been dealing with this uh, Frankenstein effect.
0: Oh, yeah. Have a great day, David and everyone, and we'll talk to you all soon.
1: Great. Thank you. Right. Bye-bye.